Do you ever wonder why God made us sexual beings in the first place? And when you think about all the negative impact that human sexuality has had in the course of history, and sometimes you just wonder, well, why did God make us sexual beings in the first place? I mean, you don't even have to read too far into the Bible to come across some of the ways that sexuality becomes extremely destructive in society. I mean, just read the story of Sodom and Gomorrah in the book of Genesis. You can just look at the life of King David, right? I mean, here's a guy who, quote-unquote, had a heart for God. God had chosen him, and his sexuality led him into adultery and then into murder. And that carried on in his family where he had one sibling, one, one child, rape another child, and then there was a murder that followed that. And sexuality over the years has, has had a lot of negative impact on people's lives. And sometimes it's as severe as sex trafficking that goes on in our world, and it continues to happen today. And sometimes it's just simply the fact that sex, in, in, sex inside the context of marriage is not what it's supposed to be. And be, instead of being something that lifts up marriage and grows it stronger, it's something that tears it apart and puts a strain on it and sometimes leads to it being destroyed. Why is it that God made us sexual people in the first place? I mean, you know... I mean, God could have cut, he could have kind of made us like caterpillars, right? You know, we could have, like after we died, you just kind of stick yourself in the tomb. And then, you know, like nine months later, out comes a new baby, right? You know, we just kind of go through this metamorphosis. Or, or God could have made it where, where we, you know, kind of like the, the plants get cross-pollinated by the bees, right? He could have just used like mosquitoes, right? And mosquitoes could have gone from one to the other. And all of a sudden, we're pregnant. And nine months later, out comes a kid. And then all we go. God could have done lots of different things. But why in the world... Did God make us sexual beings? And that's the question I want to try to answer today. Because I think a lot of times we we really don't understand the role of sexuality in our lives and in the world as God designed it and planned it. We don't really understand sexuality from God's perspective. Now, some of you are walking in this morning and say, what in the world did I walk into? And... And for the most part, what that really means is that, that my wife's phone is going off while I'm trying to preach. And, uh, but on top of that, <laughs> you know, is, is you don't read your e-letter, right? Or you're not on our e-letter sign-up, because we've been trying to forewarn you and those kinds of things. But, but I think this is actually a word that our, 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 we as the church need desperately. Now, last week, we started this series. And where we started, the foundation we laid was, you know, like everything else in our lives, if we do not, you know, we have an option to make it about God or make it about us. Everything in our lives creates a choice for us between either making it about God or making it about us. You know, Rick Warren started his book, right, The Purpose Driven Life. You know, it's not about us, it's about God. And what we discovered last week is unless we have made an intentional commitment to embrace our sexuality according to God's design, then we're not. You're just not. There isn't a way to accidentally, somehow or another, live our lives according to God's design with our sexuality. But on top of that... This is such a critical issue because what you believe about human sexuality and how you can use your human sexuality will dictate what you believe about God. 
So if, if, if you land up adopting a worldly or a self-centered approach and thought pattern relating to human sexuality, you are going to land up with a God who's really not the God who presents himself in the scriptures. That's the bottom line. There is no other option around that. So we want to back up and say, why did God create sexuality in the first place? What's its role for us in our lives? And I'm actually going to lead you through a number of different scriptures today. So I'd love for you to grab a Bible. If you don't have a Bible with you, there should be one right underneath your chair. If it's not underneath your chair, kick the person's leg out of the way next to you and grab theirs from underneath that. Or you can swipe along on your phone, just turn the volume off like my wife didn't do. And, um, and then we, we can follow along. But I think we need to go way back to the beginning to start. And and the foundation we need to bring forward is the fact that sex is good. Our sexuality is meant to be good. And the reason why is because God created it. So let's, let's look at a couple of passages. Now, we're going to start in Genesis chapter 1. So I can't even give you a page number because on these books, there is no page number because it's page 1. All right? So at the very beginning of Genesis, the very first book, of the Bible. We're going to read a few verses here from chapter 1 and then some from chapter, from chapter 2. But when, when, if you read through all of chapter 1, there is a recurring phrase that you would hear. And it would be that God saw that it was good. And that is applied to our sexuality as well. And so when we get to chapter, verse 26 of chapter 1, It says, then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness. They'll rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the animals, all the earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. And God said, God blessed them. And God said to them, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the faith of the earth. Go over to chapter 2, just the next page over. I want to read verses 18 through 25. So when we pick up this text, God has already created Adam in this second account of the creation. He's already created the male, and and God says, Then the Lord God said, It's not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper who is like him. Now, if you think the word helper there is negative, then and and somehow it 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 takes away from the dignity of individuals because it's gonna get applied in just a minute to Eve. You gotta remember that God calls himself a helper. Jesus refers to the person of the Holy Spirit, who's a part of the Trinity, as a helper. In God's economy, to be a helper is something that is to be celebrated, not looked down upon. It's not something to be run away from. It's something to be embraced. And that's true on both sides, for men and women. So the Lord said, it's not good for man to be alone. I'll make a helper who is like him. So the Lord formed out of the ground each wild animal and each bird of the sky and brought it to the man to see what he would call it and Whatever the man called the living creature, that was its name. So we can blame Adam for the name hippopotamus and all those other words that you misspelled during your spelling bee when you were in the third grade. 
The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky, and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found who was like him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. And God took one of his ribs. This is the first operation, right, you know, in human history. So God put a deep sleep on him, and, and God took one of his ribs and call, closed the flesh at that place. And the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And, and the man said, at last, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. And this is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and the wife were naked, yet they felt no shame. Now, just a couple of points I want to make to you from these passages about the goodness of our human sexuality. And, you know, we're, we're not going to get, you know, there's aspects here of being made in the image of God means that we're joint stewards with God of creation, and we have a special role in a relationship with him that's different than anything else that he's created. But I want you to see that in chapter 1, that when God made mankind in the image of God, that in order to make mankind in the image of God, it took male and female, not just male. The reason why God created different genders is because it took both genders to reflect the nature of God, the image of God in humanity. He says, let us make man in our image. In our image, let us make man. And so God created them male and female. And it is male, as male and female live in relationship with one another, different from one another, but connected to one another, bonded to one another, that they reflect the image of God. We were designed to be relational beings, and that was from the very beginning. So the next chapter shows that it takes a very special type of relationship. It's not just kind of any relationship. It's not just us living with our pets or whatever that fulfills us. It says in order for this to work, it had to be somebody who was just like Adam, but different. And he created woman to complete. And here's a couple of things that I, I, I want you to see that here is that, you know, that we've already talked about the idea that being a helper is not, to, not a sense of any sense of inferiority. It's a role. And we each have roles, and no role is more important or less important. No role has more dignity or less dignity than any other. But there's this aspect where where God wants this attraction between a man and a woman that prompts them to leave their family of origin and create this connection with one another. And with that, they embrace a new identity as a new person where, where me becomes us, where I becomes we. That's all a picture of the way that God wants to transform us by his redemptive activity and give us a new identity in Christ. And there's this powerful attraction. So God created us male and female on purpose. So he wants the, the relationship that develops between those two to be reflective of his image, his oneness, and our oneness with him, and the way that it transforms us when we live in relationship with one another and with him. That's pretty heavy. I mean, that's not the kind of stuff you get in Sunday school class when you're in the fourth grade. Because there's ideas that are just kind of hard for us to kind of hold to on up there. But I want to make maybe even a more radical statement. And this is my next point. 
when God looks at our human sexuality and the way that we express our human sexuality, God designed it to be holy. God designed it to be holy. Now, you probably have never heard the word sex and holy used together in the same sentence. Because that's not the way we, re- we really embrace it. In fact, most of the times, the church, because of, of you know, the way we, we, because we embrace the biblical sexual ethic, that God designed sexuality to be something that takes place between a man and a woman in the context of marriage, this permanent covenant relationship, so often what the church is communicating is that don't, 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 don't. You know, to be sexually active is bad, right? And so when we transform that over and then we get married, we bring this idea that sexuality is a bad thing and it becomes an issue for us. And, and because, you know, all your life you're told by the church, don't, 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 don't. And then all of a sudden when you get married, so oh, it's okay now. And it's like, well, it must have been a bad thing if I wasn't supposed to do it for so long. In fact, this past year when we were in Rwanda, one of the, Christina met with a number of different uh, women's groups from various churches and they often moved into the dialogue area of marriage and, and that kind of thing. And one of the questions that she got asked often by the women in these churches was, is it a sin for me to like sex? These were married women who were in the church asking her, is it wrong? Is it sinful for me to like sex? And to the answer to that question is no. God designed sex to be holy. Something that's holy is something that's been set apart by God to be used of him. And God has taken our human sexuality and he has set it apart to be used to communicate a very special message, to create a very special experience and to, and to, and to image for the world an incredible truth of God. Let's try to unpack that just a little bit. I'm going to move you over to the New Testament now. We're going to go to John chapter 17. I want you to hang with me for just a minute as we go through a couple of these. John chapter 17. And so we're going to be on page um, 919. 919. And we're going to read verses 20 through 23. Wait for the pages to stop turning. Jesus now is in a, he's offering a prayer to the Father for those who are following after him and all who follow after them. He says, I pray not only for these, but for all those who believe in me. This is verse 20. Through their message. So he's praying for us today. We are the ones who have come to have faith through the message of the apostles, those who were there and heard his prayer. He says, I pray not only for these, but for also for all those who believe in me through their message. May they all be one. As you, Father, are in me and I am in you, may they also be one in us so that the world may believe you sent me. I have given them the glory you have given me, May they be one as we are one. I in them and you are in me. May they be made completely one so the world may know you have sent me and you have loved me and, as you, ha- and, and you have loved them as you have loved me. Now, scripturally, 
This oneness is displayed in two, two major images. One of those is the body of Christ. And you could go read Romans chapter 12 and 1 Corinthians 12 and some other places that speak about the body of Christ and where, he, he, you know, where Christ is the head and, and the church is the body and we are all members of one another and, and, and none of us are included. So God uses the picture of the church to say that we cannot be Christian if we are not in relationship with other believers. You cannot be a Christian by yourself. The very nature of it is to express the oneness of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit. Us and Jesus, Jesus and us. We're in Jesus, who's in God. All of that is reflected by the fact that you and I live together in community as Christians. And that's why Steve is pounding away on his caffeine high for you this morning, saying, you need to be in a life group. Because just to come and sit in the service and go home and nobody knows you, you can't really live the Christian life that way. Because you are not reflecting the unity, the oneness of God that God designed the church and those who were a part of it by faith to reflect. Now, the other imagery that he used is to express that oneness is marriage. And here I'm going to take you over to Ephesians chapter 5. I told you we were going to be doing a lot of moving. Ephesians chapter 5. I'll give you a reference in just a minute. Now, this is passage of Scripture. It's written by a guy who's not married when he writes it, all right? Now, in all likelihood, since Paul was a part of the Sanhedrin before he became an apostle, in all likelihood, he was married at one point in time, and then he wasn't married. And we don't, we don't know for sure either way. But I just want to pick up Ephesians chapter 5. This is page 996. Ephesians chapter 5. And I want to start with verse 25 and just read down through. We could, we could read all of it. It says, Husbands, love your wives, just as also Christ loved the church and gave himself up to her to make her holy, cleansing her in the washing of water by the word. He did this to present the church to himself in splendor, without spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but holy and blameless. In the same way, husbands should love their wives as their own body. He who loves his wife loves himself. No one hates his own flesh, but provides for it and cares for it, just as Christ does for the church. So we are members of his body. There's that other imagery creeping in, right? And then he goes back and he quotes what we just read. And in, in back in Genesis, that this attraction to connect and to become one, which is not only the experience of marital love, but it's also the experience of, that is supposed to mimic our, our yearning and our passion, our intensity to become one with God, to know God, to be known by God. It says, for this reason, a man will leave his father and mother and, the two be, jo- and be joined to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ and the church. To sum up, each one of you is to love his wife as himself, and the wife is to respect her husband. Now, we have this, this, this imagery that not only do we have the body of Christ, but then he turns around and he uses the imagery of marriage to reflect the oneness that we are to have with God and that God wants to have with us and the oneness that's inside of the Trinity, of the Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit, and the oneness that we're supposed to have in the body of Christ, all of that is reflected in the bond that a husband and a wife have for one another. And so, 
There's several pieces of that that go together. One of it is the idea of covenant or permanency. God designed sexuality to be expressed in the context of a permanent, lifelong covenant because it is reflective of the kind of covenant that God wants to have with us. Now, do you want to kind of a, a do you want to have a relationship with God that says, well, you know, Monday through Wednesday, God is probably in. Thursday and Friday, you can count on them. Sunday mornings in particular, if you're up, 100% for God. But Saturdays, yeah, you never know where God's going to be. Is, is that the kind of covenant relationship that you want with God? That you can never be sure of who God is, what he's going to do, or what he's going to think or feel about you. God said, no, 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 no. My relationship with you is based upon a covenant of faithfulness, of love, and it is permanent. It is never changing. And so I am giving you this gift of sexuality to be expressed in the relationship between a man and a woman in a permanent covenant relationship with one another because it reflects the kind of covenant I have with you, a covenant that's going to last for eternity. And so God wants the, the imagery of the, of the bond between a husband and a wife, the physical bond between a husband and a wife, to be a reflection of his faithful love for us. And when we take it out of that context, you know, th- this is why God hates divorce. It's not because God wants you to suffer with a person who currently is making you miserable. It's that God wants marriage to be a reflection of the fact that he is never, ever going to abandon us. Now, listen, I, I understand that there's a lot of people here who say, well, this has not been my sexual experience. Is there any hope for me? And the answer to that question is yes. God's grace can heal. God can redeem all. Now, there's a part of me that's a little trep, you know, kind of a little, re- little reluctant to emphasize that too much because what happens is we say, you know what? Well, I'll just act on my sexuality now and I'll seek to be forgiven later. And, 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 and if you're working out of that mindset, the, I think the probability of you ever looking to repent later is pretty much nil. If you're looking into the face of God and say, I know what you want and I don't care, you're, you ever get in your heart back to a place where you can say, I want to turn, that's, usually it's very, very difficult to get to that place. Not impossible because God can do all things, but it's very difficult. And so... I, I want to share one other aspect with this. So you have this permanency. You have male and female entering together into this relationship that's connected. And it's something that takes place before God. You know, the scripture tells us, and you could go read Proverbs chapter 5. I've given you a reference there uh, and, and some other places. Uh, that, that everything that we do is before the eyes of the Lord. Everything we do is before the eyes of the Lord. And so our sexuality is designed to be holy because it's all before the Lord. Now, a little corollary here for me. When I think about the Christian marriages that are taking place in the world, I think it's a fair conclusion to reach that believers, a Christian marriage, should have the most fulfilling sex life of all married couples. Because when you enter into that relationship with your spouse, you're not only entering into a relationship with one another, you're entering into a relationship before God. 
And so what you have in a Christian marriage, what you're supposed to have, is you have two things. One, you have, you have two God-centered spouses. You have people who say, I'm going to be the husband or I am going to be the wife that I'm supposed to be, not because of who my spouse is, but because of my relationship with God. You're a God-centered spouse. How you act, how you feel, etc., is determined by your relationship with God. The other aspect is, is that because of God's presence in our lives and the faithful, permanent, covenant love that he gives to us, his love and mercy that he has always poured into us, is that Christians, a Christian husband and a Christian wife, ought to be the best servant lovers that we have in the world. Because God calls upon us to serve one another. And no place is that supposed to take place as powerfully as it is it does in the family, and particularly between a husband and a wife. And we could go back and unpack Ephesians about husband loving his wife as he loves his own body, giving ourselves up for them, trying to present them and edify them and bless them so they present it without any wrinkle or spot, all those kinds of things. But all of that is to say that our agenda is to go into our relationship and say, I want to serve you in love. And that's every aspect of the relationship. So, you, so in that context, you have just an amazing opportunity. So sex is holy. It's designed to communicate a message to the world that they can't see anywhere else in the same way that they see it in the context of a faithful covenant love between a husband and a wife. Now, here, here's a third truth, and it, it really applies to the first one. But the passages of Scripture, the second one, about sex being holy, but it it, it is described here is that when we misuse it, the damage that we do to ourselves. And this is the idea that sex, as designed by God, is to create a permanent bond. Sex creates a permanent bond between the people who engage in it. Now, that's designed by God on purpose for this idea of sex being holy, so that when you are sexually engaged with your spouse... It, it creates this wonderful bond, and it, and, it, and it just cements it and strengthens it and flames it and does all those wonderful things. But when we misuse it, 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 just, it just drains us. Let's look at a couple of passages of Scripture. Now, listen, I'm not trying to be a killjoy. I'm not trying to accept, but this is, this is just a, a, a truth that speaks to us today. Because we live in a generation where we, where we think, you know what, it's just sex. It's, it's, it's a victimless act. It's just sex. But, you know, I, I, I have needs. I don't really want a relationship. I'm working on my career. I'm going to school. I'm doing this. I don't have enough money. But I want to be sexually asked. So I just, let's just, we just do and, and it doesn't hurt anybody. Look at, look at some passages of Scripture with me. 1 Corinthians chapter 6, verses 15 and 16. This is page 972. Some of you didn't even know that these kinds of passages are in the Scriptures. Right? God is not afraid to get down and dirty with us about what matters most. And so Paul is responding here to some questions that the Corinthian church had sent them. They had questions like we have questions, right? And, and so he's talking about some things related to food and that kind of stuff. But look, we just want to narrow down. We're, look at verse 15. 1 Corinthians 6, verse 15, page 972. Do you not know that your bodies are members of Christ? So should I take the members of Christ and make them members of a prostitute? 
In other words, when you engage, if you, if, you, if you are a believer and you have Christ within you, when you engage sexually somebody else, you're making God do that too. All right? That's what he's saying. He says, your body, you're a member of Christ, so, so should I take a member of Christ and then make them members of a prostitute? Absolutely not. Do you not know that anyone joined to a prostitute is one body with her? When we engage sexually with somebody else, we give them something of ourselves that we can never, ever get back. It creates a permanent bond. For it says the two will become one flesh. For anyone joined to the Lord is one spirit. I want to run back to Proverbs chapter 5. And some of you have had your fill of Proverbs as you read it for three months straight this past summer as we we worked through some stuff. But this is page 535. If you don't want to turn there, you can just listen to these words. And and, and again, this is a, a father giving counsel to his son. And he's warning him about his sexuality and the way he uses that. And, and we pick up, and we're going to start with verse 7. He says, so now, my sons, listen to me, and, and don't turn away from the words of my mouth. Keep your way far from her. He's referring to the woman who is enticing him, drawing him. Do not go near the door of her house. Otherwise, you're going to give up your vitality to others. You're going to take this precious part of you and you're going to give it away to somebody else and you're going to give your years to someone cruel strangers are going to drain your resources and your earnings will end up in the house of a foreigner he's talking about the fact that when 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 we engage sexually, we give something of ourselves. That's the way God designed it. It's designed to create this prominent bond. That's why it takes place in this covenant of faithfulness between a man and a woman. But when we, when we take our sexuality and we just start casually throwing it around because it's, it's what I need in the moment or it feels good or this is about me and who are you to tell me what I can do with my own body and all those kinds of things, we are literally taking some of the most precious aspects of ourselves and we're just throwing it in the trash and flushing it down the toilet. Because that's a part of yourself that you're giving to somebody else you're never going to get back. God can bring healing, but that doesn't mean it doesn't have impact. Just because we are forgiven doesn't mean there are no consequences. And, and so when you, and he said, so he said, sex creates this wonderful connection. But when you start using your sexuality and connecting with people who have no place in your life, no permanent place in your life, you are just taking some of the best that God has poured into you and you're just pouring it down the drain and you're going to lose it all. Next point. So, so what do you do with all of this? Now, I, I want to turn you now to 1 Thessalonians. I told you, we're going to be bumping around all over the place, right? This is 1 Thessalonians. This is Paul's letter to a church at Thessalonica. If I remember correctly, it's the first church he ever planted in Europe. And we're going to look at chapter 4, verses 3 through 5. This is page 1004. 1004 in your pew Bibles. And here's the point I want to make. Like everything else in our lives, God intends for our sexuality to be mastered or controlled by our faith, not by our hormones or not by our passions. God intends for our sexuality 
to be controlled, to be governed, to be submitted to the rule of faith, not just to the urges and needs and impulses that take place in our lives. So again, Paul is writing to the church, and they've got some question, and, and, and his is, this is his response, verse 3 of chapter 4. This is God's will, 100%, never a doubt, don't have to pray about it. You can take his word for it. This is God's will, your sanctification. That is that every aspect of your life, in this particular place he's going to refer to the body, he says you take every aspect of your life and you submit it and it is impacted and transformed by the presence of faith. This is God's will, your sanctification, that you abstain from sexual immorality so that each of you knows how to possess his own vessel, another word is body, and sanctification and honor, not with lustful desires like the Gentiles who do not know God. So what he really says here is that when it comes to our sexuality, we have two options. One, we have faith on one side, right? We have faith on one side, and and that is supposed to control us. Those who do not have faith, those who do not know God, they just act on their instincts. So if if you're a person who is acting sexually outside the context of God's design, then it says you're living like a person who has no faith. You're living on your impulses. And, and so and God, that's not what God looks for us to do. God wants us to take our faith and with that to be master over our vessels. And it, this is one of the reasons why it's so important for married and unmarried people to understand biblical sexuality. Whether you're just kind of coming into it as you're through your teenage years or whether you're a young adult kind of figure out where, where's, where's the relationships going to be in my life or whether you're single again for whatever reason or, you know, or whether you think you're, you're past that and the urges are not like they used to be because you're old. All of it is God wants us to possess our bodies in a way that's honoring to him the way we treat them and use them and engage. And, and so those who don't know God or those who live like they think there is no God, they're just acting on their immorality. They're, they're just, they're just they're, they're, and, and, and on their lustful desires. So, you know, when, when you, guys, when you and I are engaged, if, if we engage in watching pornography, we're, we're acting like there is no God because we're just indulging our lustful desires in a way like there is no God. And, and, and you can just keep taking that stuff right on down. And, and yet God says, I, my, my purpose for sexuality is for your faith to permeate in how you use it, and it enters you into a relationship that reflects the permanent, loving covenant that I have with you that is established in Christ Jesus is going to last for all of eternity. That's what it's supposed to be all about. And when it's done like that, it's holy and it's good. And that's what the, I want the world to see. Got one last point. For us, God designed our sexuality to be a blessing. But far too often, we turn it into a curse. God designed our sexuality to be a blessing. But far too often, we turn it into a curse. There's a reference I'd like for you to write down in your notes if you're following along on on the sermon outline that's on the back of your handout today. It's 
Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. If you want to turn there, it's just 20 pages from where we were before, page 1024. Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4. It's interesting in a book where, where it is deeply, deeply theological, just like it, 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 it's just like no other book in the New Testament. He has this statement in verse 4 of chapter 13. Marriage must be respected by all. And the marriage bed kept undefiled because God will judge immoral people and adulterers. Here is the plea from God through his word for you and I to hold on to our sexuality in a way that's a blessing. That the marriage bed be undefiled and for it to be respected, for it to be honored. And when we fail to do that, and he uses two terms here of, of uh, uh, immoral people and adulterers. That's, that's really kind of like if you're mar- immoral people are those who are engaged sexually and they're not married, and adulterers are those who are engaged in somebody who's not their spouse. He kind of covers all the territory. He says, when you do that, you're going you're gonna to experience judgment. God's going to judge the immoral people and the adulterers. But God designed our sexuality to be a blessing. It's supposed to be a blessing to our marriages. And the way that we hold on to our sexuality and we use it in the context of our relationships, our marriages, is supposed to communicate a message to the world that can't be expressed any other way. And, and, and we need to embrace our sexuality in a way that, once again, is, is honoring, and it's by faith, and it brings the blessing into our lives. If you're married, it, it is to, to use your sexuality to build up and to encourage and to cement and display the oneness, the, the intensity and the passion and the, and the permanency of the love that God has for us. And, and for those of us who aren't, it, it is, who aren't married, it, it is for us to learn in faith, to possess our vessel in a, in a way that is, is honoring to God. And, you know, it, it, we're, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper in just a moment. And, and isn't it interesting here as we've kind of moved through these last two sections to, to, to think that God used a human body to redeem us. And part of the message to us is that God wants to redeem everything that we do with our bodies and to make them about the glory of God. And we can be sexual beings and glorify God. So I invite you today to, to, first of all, you know, it all starts with faith. If you don't have faith, there's no way to control your body by faith. And so I invite you into a relationship with God. Acknowledge the fact that you're not perfect, that you're sinful, that you need a, you need a, you need a Savior, you need to be forgiven, and embrace Christ for the very first time. For the rest of us, we need to seek the redemption the transformation, if you will, of our lives, including our sexuality before God. Let's pray for just a minute. And as we pray, I invite our servers to go ahead and get set up at the back. Would you join me in prayer for just a moment? Father, it seems so odd to step out of a message about sexuality and to observe the Lord's Supper.
But God, I'm, I'm grateful for the powerful symbols of the physical body that you became in your son, Jesus Christ, so that we might be redeemed. God, I'm grateful for the way that Christ modeled the possessing of his vessel, his body, in a way that was 100% from beginning to end pleasing to you. And his ability to redeem us, his desire to redeem us in the ways that we haven't done that. And to empower us to do so as we go forward. God, we seek your forgiveness today. There isn't a single person in this room who isn't sexually broken in some way or not another. Not a single one of us who hasn't thought an inappropriate thought, looked at somebody in a way that objectified them, been in more than one relationship. God, all of us need your healing. God, as we come to your table today, remind us beyond a shadow of a doubt that you indeed can redeem all of us, our past, our present, and our future. For I pray it in Jesus' name, amen.